This podcast is recorded and produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country nationwide and their connections to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to It Takes Boobs, a Women's Agenda special podcast celebrating the strength, resilience and grit of women across Australia. Through this series, we challenge the typical sexist trope of it taking balls to get big things done. Boy, is that wrong. I'm your host, Tyler Lambert, and this series is made possible thanks to our friends at Stella Insurance. Former Matilda star Sarah Walsh is the head of women's football, Women's World Cup legacy and inclusion at Football Australia. With years of experience in professional football both on and off the field, Sarah is no stranger to what it takes on being a female athlete in a notoriously male-dominated sport. We know gender equality in sport is vital, so why aren't we there yet? In this episode, I sit down with Sarah to reflect on some of the key moments in her life that required the tenacity and perseverance to power through. And we speak more broadly to the importance of equal representation and female leadership in women's sport. So Sarah Walsh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Your story and your journey is such a remarkable one. I do want to start there really, because as I said, it has been pretty multifaceted from getting started in football to ending up in the Matildas uh, to now your current role as the head of women's football, women's world cup legacy and inclusion at Football Australia. How did it all unfold? Yeah, well, um, I think if you look at it like that, there's been obviously been a common theme around football, but I guess I probably didn't see myself or view myself as a bit of a change agent. But if I look back at my career, whether it was, you know, starting out playing at five, being the only girl uh, in a football club, not just in my team, you know, moving into, you know, all boys rep teams and then, you know, finally making my way to um, the Matildas for over 10 years. I've always kind of, you know, wanted things to be better and, um, you know, I, I find myself in this role now where I'm able to affect change probably in the in the heart of it right at the national body and, um, you know, there's a lot of change happening in our sport and, and across sport more broadly and I've got to say it's pretty fun to be in the heart of that change with the Women's World Cup coming up. It's our biggest opportunity to really shake things up. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get more to the World Cup, which everyone is anticipating so much at the moment. But I wanted to go to the point around, you know, your advocacy and the point around, you know, the fact that there is this moment in women's football at the moment and it has definitely garnered huge support in recent years. But in the 90s, it wasn't really the case when you were getting started. Can you share a bit more about how you pushed to be visible and taken seriously during a climate in which it was pretty hard to be? Yeah, I think, um, look, I do look back at, you know, uh, I've learned so much since my playing days. As a player, um, you get this unique kind of opportunity to to really, you're an individual contributor, right? And yes, you play in a team, but ultimately, you know, day in, day out, you're thinking about what it is you need to do to be able to contribute to a broader collective vision, which is, you know, winning, uh, whether it be through a club or a national team. And you're very process driven because, you know, you've got seven days before a match and it's one foot in front of the other and, you know, how do I build on my strengths? And I think um, being a former player and having spent a large majority of my career in the high-performance environment, you know, I've been able to take away those learnings around, you know, high-performing teams, uh, understanding how to work under pressure, to problem-solve, 
aside from all the really great things that sport bring around commitment, um, dedication and, you know, resilience, which I've got a bit of a view on now around resilience. Um, so, you know, I've been able to take all these learnings and kind of stay the course in in what is long-term change for, for sport and women in sport and, you know, always trying to, I guess, create better structures, whether it be through governance programs and thinking about how to get there. But I think one of the, the key learnings from my, my time as a high, uh, in high performance is you, know, you need to bring people on the journey. You're in a team environment and what that looks like for me right now is is working with our football ecosystem. You know, we, we have 2,500 community clubs. So I do think there's threads of learnings and evolution of my journey is, is better understanding not only the barriers to entry for women in sport, but also, you know, um, starting to think through innovation how we actually start to solve for that. How do we move past talking about the barriers? And, and I do think my journey has kind of helped me in a way because I always have a player-centric lens mm, mm. Um, and always thinking about the, the person through all business decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go quickly to the point you made around, you know, you mentioned having a view around resilience and, and um, how that's evolved over time. And certainly courage and resilience are crucial qualities for any athlete and particularly women. Can you share a specific moment or challenge in your career where you had to draw on those qualities? What is your most vivid it took boobs moment? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't think of one moment. There's been there's been plenty of moments. These these I guess the microaggressions you would call in in sport where you come up against uh, whether it's a particular bias around women's role or. Um, you know, when I was a player, what that meant was being on the actual players association and the, the players executive. I think that's my furthest, you know, memory back is standing up for wanting more than a, a per diem and, and and starting to think a lot more critically about what it is that the women deserved and, and thinking critically about what the men were getting for, for doing the same role. And um, mm. you know, I always just had a, a thirst for learning. And I think that that's been key, always looking to evolve and looking to better understand what it is within the system that's creating barriers and as a player I was I was someone that asked a lot of questions and I can imagine for the federation at the time was very annoying so (laughs) it's um it's interesting to come full circle now I'm at the federation who is making these decisions working with the players association and the players and I think that's given me a unique understanding for where the players are coming from particularly the women's players Mm. Um, and wanting to always further the game, but not in the way in which it was designed for men in a new and different way. Um, and I've got plenty of examples around, you know, what that looks like today. So, mm, mm. so I don't know if that answered your question, but I have plenty of boobs moments, um, <laughs> not with the lens that I that I was a woman affecting the change. It was just, you know, I happened to be a woman that was, you know, benefited from that change. Yeah. You did mention, you know, the barriers to entry for women in football. And then you, you talked a bit about the the innovation and that aspect of bringing innovation into the game to enact change. As a leader in women's football, what initiatives have you spearheaded to promote gender equality and inclusion within the sport? And what impact have you seen so far with that? Yeah, there, there's a number of different initiatives. I think you know, given it, we're the national body, we, we obviously regulate football here in the country and you know, in a lot of ways that can mean, um, you know, national teams. It can also mean grassroots. And the APL, although it's unbundled now, we're still a regulator thinking about how that, how the professional game can contribute to the, fo- the overall football ecosystem here but also globally. So 
Um, if we're talking about the Matildas, um, I work with an amazing team at Football Australia, whether it's in our legal department, in our commercial department. And so a lot of what I do is a work working across function to make sure that we're designing and um, creating programs and policy education that's fit for purpose today for women, um, for all types of women. I know we're going to talk about that today. Intersectionality is, is crucial. Mm. Um, but as an example, we have our parental policy for the Matildas and for anyone that's seen the Disney doco, you know, I've got to say it really brings focus to the impact of the policy we develop in the office, right? Mm. Um, it now makes sure that a parental policy that's fit for purpose for a woman working in our office is not fit for purpose for a, an athlete that's re-entering the sporting pitch. Um, and so there's many different parts to it. There's, you know, pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy and post-pregnancy coming back into football and there's a number of different uh, mechanisms within that not only support them financially but you know how do we have to rethink the high performance environment Mm. to better include a carer to account for breastfeeding to account for the greater support that that player would need Mm. Um, and then also thinking about parents and and women who actually didn't carry but also you know thinking about what that looks like for a secondary Mm. Um, so we, we actually have two of those players in our in our team at the moment and um, ironically through this policy our high performance environment has been enhanced and our coach talks about that actually you know because they can be quite intense environments you know and particularly in tournament mode and mm. having the child around really brings perspective and allows players to switch in and out of that performance mm. mindset you know, because a lot of players actually need that and might not know they need it, but um, having a child around really brings good perspective and, mm. you know, relaxes players when, when it's not time for performance. So um, mm. there's a lot of different really great things about it. And we have a number of different programs within the community that we've been working on to you know, make sure that we're giving our community clubs the tools. For a long time we, we talk about things at the national level, but our clubs are volunteers. You know, they're, they're supporting community clubs. Um, and a lot of these community clubs have have great and, and um, committed people, but they actually just need the tools to be able to either, you know, grow their their women's participation, women and girls, mm. um, but mm. also retain. I think one of our challenges is, like all other sports, is retention. Yeah. We have no issue in attracting women and girls, but you know, through work we've done around our community facilities um, audit, we're finding out that our infrastructure isn't fit for purpose. So. Yeah, um, yeah. work we've done over the last three years has really given us critical insights into what needs to change uh, and what investment we, we need to be able to fix it. I think that that's a really important point around reforming the structures that exist at the moment because they aren't family friendly and we have this expectation that female athletes kind of just get back to it after potentially having kids or, or having other time away, everyone has competing life priorities, but, you know, kids is a big one. And then kind of just getting back to basics with it. And it's a really important part of what, you know, Football Australia is doing. Yeah, and it's nice to see that there are a lot more sporting codes that are actually taking that initiative as well and looking to see what kind of reforms are needed rather than just looking at kind of tokenistic efforts. And I think that that's been a massive shift that we've seen over recent years. Yeah, absolutely. 
I do want to touch on intersectionality, which you brought up before, but it obviously plays a significant role in women's experiences. How do you address the unique challenges faced by women from diverse backgrounds within the football community and what steps are being taken to create an inclusive and supportive environment for for everyone? Yeah, I think... um... What I have learned is is about having the right people in the room when decisions are made. I mean, it's it sounds so one on one, but um, you know, a, a perfect example of that is is making sure that, uh, in particular, First Nations players, right, and whether that be First Nations women or men, uh, we absolutely need to listen to the lived experience when we're either designing policy programs um, or education for the football community, and you know, um, how in which our organisation responds. Uh, for the the current conversation around the Uluru Statement, we're very much guided by our National Indigenous Advisory Group. And so it's listening to the experts and making sure that there's this constant feedback loop to make sure that we're evaluating what we're doing and if it's working well and if it's it's hitting what was intended at the right level. Uh, Often we are, you know, four layers removed from the players at a grassroots level. So that's a federated model that is sport, uh, which creates a challenge. But, um, you know, making sure that we are listening to the lived experience is, is number one for that. Um, we have many examples. I mean, we, we have a game changer program, which, which is this educational tool for 2,500 community clubs. One of our challenges as a sport is uh, we are the biggest club-based sport. That's fantastic. Overlay that with having the governance federated model that we have it, you know, there's a lot of layers to be able to affect change and we work really well with our, our state and territory federations on the ground, but we're so big and so affecting change can take a little bit longer in our sport. And so we've designed a framework, uh, an online education and support tool for our community clubs. And within that, uh, we're creating modules, mandatory modules around inclusion. And so starting that conversation with mandatory modules when a club um, looks to engage around the Women's World Cup, you know, it's this education on the ground um, for our stakeholders to make sure that we're, you know, we're starting from a place, a base level of knowledge, all of us. Um, mm. You know, sport's a microcosm. Football is a microcosm of society. So as mm. you can imagine, you know, my approach uh, with respect to inclusion and intersectionality is targeting that movable middle. I mm. think it's, mm. it's something really important. Um, as a sport with, you know, a finite amount of resources, we have to be very strategic about, you know, what clubs we target, you know, the messaging that we send out because, uh, you know, not everyone is, is going to be aligned with Football Australia's values of inclusion and mm. we need to think how we move the doll for all players. Uh, we are the most multicultural sport. We're, we're played around 211 countries in the world. So we are uniquely, uh, organically multicultural Mm. Uh, but we need to make sure that our competition structures and the way in which we run our clubs um, mirror that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, uh, sport is a microcosm of society, but also sport is such an ingrained part of Australian culture and identity as well. And there's we we value it so highly. Um, so there is such a, a huge opportunity for sporting codes to really be the influences of change and and we have seen that so much in recent times you know from from athletes getting behind big protest movements to you know the the actual sporting bodies um standing behind uh big political and social movements as well and i think that that is such an important part of it uh, i know that there are there are critics that don't feel the same way but i think it is so vital 
Yeah, we have an example around that. There were discussions that that FIFA were going to build a, a sponsorship with Saudi um, mm. around the FIFA Women's World Cup and, um, you know, we, we strongly believed that a, a, a partnership like that didn't align with the values of, uh, you know, the both host cities, uh, host countries, sorry, Australia and New Zealand, and we made that position very clear with FIFA, working with, you know, the independent experts here, uh, Amnesty, and, and making sure that, you know, what we were doing was right, but it, it just didn't sit right with where we're headed um, not particularly with with our own legislation in here in Australia, but we think that we can be a global leader around gender equity. We have a long way to go as a country, more broadly. We all understand that the metrics are not good. But as you said, sport has the ability to influence large critical numbers. And that's why, you know, government looked to sport for, you know, to be able to drive social change. And for us, it's 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 not particularly about the social change, although that's amazing because it's a it's a result of the work, but we want to be a game for all. We want to continue to be the largest, you know, participated sport in Australia. We are already the club-based sport, um, but we want that to be mirrored. We want, you know, parents to turn up to our sport and, and you know, not just think about the fact that they're putting their child. I mean, I come from a high-performance background, but when I, I have a, a two-year-old and when I first put her in her sport, I, I will allow her to choose her sport, mm. uh, which is probably hard to believe. I, I, she has to try football. <laughs> um, but I think it's important that you, we think critically about what the sport offers at all levels because if she's good at that sport, there might be a cap to, to her reaching her full potential and you, we're going to fully understand what that looks like. And i got to say our sport provides some pretty unique opportunities. I mean, if you look at the life of Sam Kerr, look at the life I lived, you know, that was 12 years ago. Mm. I've been to over, you know, 60 countries playing for my country and, you know, much more worldly as a result of that. Um, mm. And, you know, I, yeah, I think it's obviously taught me the unique uh, values that we receive and skills from football, but, um you know, going to the Olympics and a World Cup and also being able to play here domestically if I didn't want to travel, uh, so many options. Mm. And I think that there is quite a solid chance that your two-year-old girl is going to be pretty adept at sport. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I, would, I would say. Um, I mean, talking about it takes boobs moments, what kind of courage did it take for the players, the Matildas, to come together and kind of fight against that decision for the Saudi um, sponsorship deal yeah it was um look it, it was definitely a business position it's um it's an interesting one like and I and I understand this completely having been a Matilda uh, we never really speak on behalf of our players that's that's up to the players but it's something as an organization that that one didn't align with our values but also to you know didn't align with the vision and what we were aiming to achieve which was you know 50 50 in gender participation um, you know, we thought that a partnership with Saudi, um, you know, for a women's football property really just was in stark conflict with what we wanted to achieve as hosts. Um, and so you know, FIFA did listen and um, that didn't go ahead, which is really important. You know, we're in the process of also looking at a couple of different matters around how we embed First Nations culture um, throughout the tournament and do that, you know, in a really meaningful way in a really very important um, year for our mm. country and for First Nations people in Australia, actually more broadly for reconciliation. So um, 
I, don't, I wouldn't say it as a big boobs moment. I think we, we had a really solid position as an executive on that. You know, I'm, I'm excited to work for a, an organisation that, that stood strong on our values in these because, um, you know, it definitely would have, um, you know, taken the shine over what is going to be football football's yeah. biggest moment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think women and, and men across Australia would feel exactly the same. Um, I do want to turn now to the Women's World Cup. It's the pinnacle event for women's football. How do you ensure that the legacy of the tournament continues to drive progress and create opportunities for women in, in the sport? Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> probably the question that I get asked the most, which is obviously it's the, the key part of my portfolio, which is Legacy 23. I think it's important just to go back a little bit around um, you know, something we've done differently as an organisation. Legacy is usually thought about it's what you leave post-event but actually it's the foundations you build prior to the event that the sport capitalises on post-event. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, when we won the rights to host, it was in the you know, depths of COVID in 2020. Um, I don't know if you remember, but we were, you know, jumping around crazy in a, in a room with the sports minister at the time, um, Colbeck, and, um, you know, it was, it was a really great moment for our sport because, you know, one of two reasons, one, we were all going through some hard times with COVID um, mm. and and two, you know, we thought that hosting a Women's World Cup in three years' time provided us an opportunity to actually reset and reshape the sport how it should have been built. Mm. Um, and we haven't got everything right, but what we've been doing for the last three years is been significant. We've, we've started to have conversations and set a vision around this five-pillar leveraging strategy, which is called Legacy. Uh, which is focused on, you know, building better infrastructure in community facilities. It's, you know, making sure that our Matildas and young Matildas are set for the world stage to be world beaters, not just at this tournament, but, you know, beyond this tournament. So tangibly what that means is they've, they've played in every single window. We've invested heavily. We've thought critically and strategically about who they play. Off the pitch, you know, we've been thinking about how we drive greater exposure for the team. You may have seen the Disney docuseries and, you know, we thought critically about, interestingly, given how much investment we put into the brand, we thought critically about who who we went with and that was Disney. Um, Disney provided that global reach that we're after to start thinking about the brand beyond Australia here. Um, we had a number of different sh- streaming um, platforms that that were absolutely you know wanting that property but um, we went with Disney because it was you know, aligned with where we wanted to take this team mm. uh, you know that's one of our most in-demand properties Combank Matildas we're one of the only sports that can say that in Australia about their women's sporting brand they actually just surpassed uh, the Wallabies around awareness here in Australia like they're doing amazing things domestically and globally so it's not by chance the business pivoted around our Matildas um, and we're reaping the rewards. You can't find a ticket for the, the Combank Matildas group matches. They sold out in minutes. That doesn't happen by chance and it doesn't just happen by hosting a World Cup. Mm. Um, so uh, on the other end of the, the pillars, uh, we're looking at participation. So, again, it's through that lens of 50-50, creating new programs but also thinking about um, you know, how we enhance the current ones. You know, not every woman wants to actually turn up and play 11 v 11 on a weekend and train twice a week. I definitely don't have time for that or the Mm -hmm. motivation. So, you know, social football is going to be key for us. Um, But, um, you know, they're they're just, I guess, high-level points around it, but they're all interrelated, the pillars, because if we want to grow women's football through new programs, we've got to make sure our infrastructure is ready. Yeah. Um, And sadly it's not, you know, only 24% here in New South Wales. 
um, of our community facilities are uh, considered inclusive. Um, yeah, that's right. just not going to help us retain players, right? So we're working with government. Um, we've received a significant amount of funding already over the past three years. But as you said uh, within your question, how do we continue that momentum beyond? I think we've got a great framework through Legacy 23 to, to continue partnerships with commercial and state and federal government to make sure that we are, you know, we're building up to 2032. Our Matildas mm. Uh, mm. also play in and our Ollie Roos also compete in the Olympics. So it's a, it's a fantastic time for the sport. Um, we've got the frameworks right now. Yeah. I know a lot of people say, you know, there's this moment around women's sport and women's football at the moment, but it's actually not a moment. It's been, you know, quite a extended moment and it's definitely one that is going to last. And certainly, you know, I remember that exact occurrence that you mentioned before when you, when we found out that we were going to be hosting the World Cup. I think we reported on it at the time and it was such an amazing video to see and, and just see, you know, the excitement that existed there. But I want to ask you about um, the driving force behind the enormous growth and popularity of women's football that we have seen um, because you'll hear naysayers say, you know, there's not enough there's not enough sponsorship, there's not enough, like women's sport isn't as good as men's sport, you know, blah, blah, blah. Clearly that's not the case here. Um, but how do you envision the the sport evolving and maintaining that popularity? Yeah, look, not for not for a second do I, I take it for granted where we are and how we maintain that. I think I learnt that as a player actually. That's that's great you make the national team. I think the challenge is staying there. I think the, the biggest challenge is making sure that you, you maintain your starting position and that's how I've always felt about this role at any minute. This could go backwards and it shouldn't, but, you know, that's what history has told us. So I think it's, it's always advancing um, the way in which we promote this team and you know I think more broadly the the benefits actually in sport and I know our organization completely understands this um, you know football can't be strong just with one national team what the Socceroos were able to achieve in November December last year we have two uh, iconic national teams that whether you like sport football or not there's something about you know the broader society that just get on board with these two but what, what we got to see in November last year is is how the broader society feels about these two national teams and we really have to leverage that. So it's not all about the Matildas, but unless our Matildas are standing shoulder to shoulder with our Socceroos, football won't be successful. It will be successful. It will never reach its full potential, I don't believe. So it's going to be a constant you know, work in terms of making sure that one in which we're setting up the systems and the policies so when leadership changes at the top, things are maintained. Um, I think you could talk more broadly and generally around that, whether it be, you know, we have 40, 40, 20 constituted on our board. I don't often talk a lot about that, but that is fundamental to everything we do. We actually, uh, more often than not, have actually uh, more women on our board as a result of that. And so at the very least, we have 50 50%. And um, that has changed the way in which our organisation operates. And again, it's just having that lived experience to be able to talk to issues and be there when decisions are being made. So for us, yeah, I think it's going to be a, you know, we're going to learn a lot. I mean, there's not enough research in in uh, high-performance sport for women. Um, you know, how the menstrual cycle um, impacts performance, we've got no idea. Uh, we really have no idea globally. And I think, you know, through this World Cup, we could be setting up education 
um, and research around this because, um, you know, we have some of the, the best medical and uh, sports science uh, people in the world and I think there's an opportunity for us to lead on that. I mean, we, we haven't even scratched the surface for women's football yet. Uh, we're seeing the rise in Europe with the investment being made from men's clubs, the likes of Chelsea, you know, Man City investing in our women. It just excites me to think where this game will be in 10 years' time. But here in Australia, we're keeping up with Asia, we're keeping up with the likes of Europe and, um, you know, we have to have to keep moving. You can't stand still. Mm. I think that's a great um, note to to wrap this podcast up on and I think, you know, your point around um, scratching the surface is a good one. There's There's obviously so much work that's being done at the moment and people like you um, so heavily involved in reforming the sport and our, our culture around this and, and making sure that it is an inclusive arena for all women in the future. And I want to thank you for that because it is such a massive effort and also, you know, just how influential the Matildas have become and the capacity for them to be role models in, in so many little girls' lives. It's huge work. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and um, and we can't wait for seeing the Matildas in all of their action and all of the theatrics. We're just super excited. Um, yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's been fun to chat. <laughs>